Hi, I'm Whitney. And I'm Camden. Welcome to Ghosts and Garnets, Murder in Idaho. Murder. (laughs) 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 Welcome to our first podcast. Don't know what we're doing, but we're going to give it one hell of a shot. Very short intro with us so we can get to the good stuff. We are both lifelong Idahoans. And we both love spooky, scary, murdery stuff. Uh, And we decided that we were going to research some things in Idaho. We actually weren't sure when we started if there would be enough weird shit in Idaho for us to do a podcast about it. Shit, is there a lot of stuff in Idaho? (laughs) You think Idaho politics are weird. We have like some crazy ass crime that happens here too. So like so much that we have been, I'm like a little overwhelmed with how many cases yes. I've uncovered. Yeah. So overwhelming. Yeah. But we're very excited and we hope you guys enjoy. All of our stories are going to be things that happen in Idaho. Some will be spooky ghosty. Some will be murdery. Some will be capers. Crimes and gross gone. politicians. Yes. Ew. Nasty, gross politicians. Yeah. So I think we'll just get started. Our story today is the story of the Boise murder house. And I feel like if you grew up in Boise, particularly in Southeast Boise, you know what the murder house is. And you drove past the murder house for fun. I drive past the murder house like every day. Right. It's two miles from my house. Right. And every time I drive past, I'm sad. I get sad, not because of the murder, but because it's such a fucking dumpster now. Right. Right. Yeah. Because it's it's been a dumpster forever. Old historic house. Yes. Yes. It was built in like 1910. You can tell at one point it was beautiful, like very grand. It has, you know, balcony and pillars and grounds. And ever since I can remember it, it's just a shithole. Same. It's like dilapidated, rusty cars in the front yard. Right. Right. We drive by on a Friday or Saturday night to scare ourselves for a moment. Oh yeah. Well, and I've been waiting to ask you this. I don't know if this is a real memory or if I have like dreamed it or confused it with something else, but did we go to a party at the murder house in high school? No, you did make that up for sure. (laughs) (laughs) We went to parties near it and we talked about it. And for some reason I get this really weird memory that Marissa had some great story about the murder house. So I have a, like this weird memory of being in the front yard and then being on the stairs in the house. But that's all I remember. You remember that and, inside? Are you sure we never got out of the car? And Oh, no. Like this could be fully made up in my head at this oh, point. Oh, yeah, it is. Who the fuck knows? It was 30 years ago. <laughs> I also have a memory that, that those blonde twins that were older than us in high school, that they lived there. Do you remember that? Oh, you made that up too. Great. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. All right. Well, let's get started. (laughs) Let's get into it. All right. So on the night of June 30th, 1987, Boise resident Clinton Sparks was fast asleep in his bed in Southeast Boise when he was awoken by the sound of someone pounding on his front door. He then heard someone, quote, screaming desperately. It sounded like the man yelling was saying, Get off of me. Get away from me. Fucking terrifying. I would die. I would die. 100%. <laughs> totally I'd die. freeze. 
unable to call 911. Yes. By the time Sparks made it to his front door and looked outside, he saw two men chasing, then eventually dragging a third man across the street to 805 Linden, up the front steps and inside the house. Mr. Sparks then called the police and reported what he had seen, urging the dispatcher to send someone right away. So we tried to get a recording of the 911 call. We were not able to get it. I was able to get a couple of lines of transcript from it. So Cam, you want to be the dispatcher since you were a dispatcher back in the day? Sure, ma'am. All right. Okay. What's the problem there? Ask the dispatcher with Ada County. Am I supposed to say that? Are you going to edit that out now? (laughs) If you want me to, if I can figure out how to edit, I sure will. Then Mr. Spark says, uh, I don't know. A couple of guys came up and beat on the door and I went out and I looked and there's some blood on the door. It looks like. Okay, can you see them down the street at all? Asked the dispatcher. There looks like something is going on in the house across the street. The police never came. Never came. Don't worry, we will get into that in a bit. It's just unreal. Can you even imagine being asleep and having someone pound on your door and then you open the door and there's fucking blood on your front door? And not it's not a little bit of blood. Like I'll post the photo of Clinton Sparks' front door um, on our socials uh, after the episode come out so you guys can see it. It is a significant amount of blood on his front door. And there's like trails of blood coming from the street. No, no. first of all, I would never sleep again ever in my life. One, (laughs) two, I'm moving immediately. Yes. Three, what in the actual fuck, police? (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) 2022 that that would no yeah no so scary so we really wanted to give you guys some background on the victim of this case and to be honest when we first started researching i was a little judgy that i couldn't find any stories that had anything about this kid the only thing that any article said was that he was chopped up and like nothing else and um i did look as I feel like both of us are sort of verified internet stalkers, you know? Oh, yeah. And we can find some shit. And I even joined a Mormon family tree site because they teased <laughs> that they had this guy's obituary. They did not have it. And now I'm on some kind of master list and I'm getting emails. So I really went after it. You might as well but, just sign up. Um, there wasn't even an obituary for this guy. There was just a very short death notice. And the only photo I could find was one of those like old school newspapery drawings that the newspapers did in the eighties. And I'll post that on our socials as well, but there was nothing about the victim except for sort of bare minimum. So So we will tell you what we did find. So the victim's name was Preston Adam Murr, and he was born on September 18th. 1965 in Santa Clara, California, to Father Adam and Mother Carol. Now, from what I could gather, he had at least one sister, maybe two, and maybe a brother. It's all very unclear in the reporting. There's a witness that mentioned something about his brother, but it's the only time that I ever found it. So I know for sure he has a sister. At some point, the family moved to Boise, and up until about A month before his death, he was working at the Fireball Factory, which 
Who the fuck knew Idaho had a fireball factory? We're talking cinnamon whiskey here? Cinnamon whiskey fireball, I'm assuming. That's the only kind of fireball I know. Same. That's crazy. There was a factory and he worked there. Yeah. And he was listed just as a laborer. And that's really all I could find. Also, he was living with his sister and his sister's kids at the time of his death in an apartment in Boise. The sister was out of town visiting her husband with her kids who was working in Washington. And that's what we know about this kid's life up until the night of his death. So Preston Murr attended a funeral in Boise on June 29th, 1987. Murr and a small group of funeral participants got shit-faced and belligerent. Belligerent. Fireball. (laughs) A fight broke out between Murr and two others. Police came and Murr and the other two were cited for disorderly conduct. So an insight into what would happen this night. Later that night, he was, Murr he, called, was, he was raring for a fight. Raring. Later <laughs> that night, Murr called the police from his sister's apartment and reported that someone had called and threatened to kill him. At this point, Murr called Daniel Rogers. Daniel Rogers was his drug dealer and convicted murderer out of California, and they had only known each other for a couple of months. Rogers and his friend Darren Cox agreed to meet Murr at a Circle K and help him find out who had threatened him. They pulled into the parking lot and Murr on the payphone and was holding a bat. He was. He was holding a bat. Mm. They all got into the car and drove to Murr's sister's apartment where they talked about the threatening telephone call and the whereabouts of guns that had been stolen from Rogers. Now, remember the guns because they will come up again later on in the story. Then they drove around Boise trying to locate the apartment and the people Murr said had stolen Rogers' guns. They didn't find anything. They then returned to 805 Linden Street. Can you imagine these three drunk idiots driving around looking for some random apartment with guns in it? Well, especially in 1987. We have no cell phones. It's like getting out their map from the back seat pocket. Yeah. You know, and with their bottle of Fireball. Yes. This drunk kid with a bat. He's like, yeah, I know where your guns are. Using their rotary phones. (laughs) Tracking them down. Tracking them down. Also, in this story, a couple of times during the uh, trial, this kid, Preston, is called Pete. It's only a couple of times when you hear that, that's they do mean the victim, Preston. We're going to call him Preston because that was his name, and only murderers are calling him Pete. So, according to later testimony, an argument broke out in the basement and Murr was shot in the shoulder with the 357 Magnum. Then he somehow managed to escape the house. Now they're in the basement. He runs up the stairs outside. He's running across the street to Mr. Sparks' house, bangs on the door before being dragged back to the basement by Rogers and Cox, where he was then shot in the back of the head. He died on June 30th, 1987, at the age of 21, which brings us back to the beginning of our story when Mr. Sparks was calling the police, who never fucking showed up. So poor Mr. Sparks, he's still waiting for the cops to come. He looked out his window again, and he noticed two people moving around the porch and yard across the street. Then he saw one of them hosing the front porch down in the middle of the night. <laughs> so wild. 
<laughs> again, not sleeping. And could you imagine? Two in the morning, hose on the front porch off. It's fine. It's fine. Go back to bed. Then this is the scariest fucking thing. One of the people then approaches his house with a flashlight. Mr. Sparks is to be looking for something. Mr. Sparks's house. Somebody is hosing some blood off and then they're coming to his yard, walking towards his door with a flashlight, looking for something. What are you looking for, sir? No, you're looking to murder another fucking person. No, thank you. Terrifying. Terrifying. Mr. Sparks waits for a while for the cops to show up thinking, I mentioned blood. They're probably going to come, right? They didn't. And he got sleepy and he went to bed. (sighs) He went to bed. I that's, mean, that's no a judgment, Mr. Sparks. It's it's a rough, you've had a rough night. Like, I fully Listen get it. Me. I would never sleep again. No, if his wife had been the one that woke <laughs> up, now let's be serious. That she, no. <laughs> the cops would have fucking been there. This kid may not have gotten dragged back. I mean, I don't even know. But if the yeah. wife had woken up, that's all I can tell you. This would not be the same story. No, it's baffling. I'm baffled. Yes. So they never showed up. He went to sleep. And that's where we leave Mr. Sparks. And we'll come back to the police's fuck up in a bit. Oh, yeah. 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 So while Mr. Sparks was getting some rest, some sleepy time, some Z's, if you will. (laughs) Very tired. Rogers and Cox had been very busy just chopping Preston Murr's body into 13 pieces with an axe and knives in the basement of Rogers' home and throwing the pieces into garbage bags. Now... This 13 pieces business, it was everywhere. Every single article said, chopped him into 13 pieces, chopped him into 13 pieces. It's a very specific number. And 13. Come you know, on. I was going through my head thinking, where would you chop someone off? <laughs> Body-wise. 13, like, 13. Head. And it comes up a little later that there's some, like, random fingers. And I'm thinking, that would be more than 13. Anyway, we'll get to it. Sorry. Off track. (laughs) Back to the chopping up of the body. Um, Yeah. The bags were uh, of garbage were then put into the trunk of a brown Grand Prix belonging to (laughs) Roger's wife. During the early morning hours of June 30th, Rogers and Cox drove to an area near Weezer, Idaho, on the Idaho-Oregon border. Most of the body parts were thrown into the Brownlee Reservoir. They took his head to a bluff approximately 100 yards above the water and left it in some sagebrush. The plastic bags, bloody gloves, and other clothing were discarded in a dumpster behind a convenience store in Meridian, Idaho. Why did you put the head on a bluff? You fucking idiots. You drive two fucking hours in the middle of the night to get rid of a body that you have just chopped up with an axe, and then you put the head out in the just where someone can just wander along and find it in some sagebrush. Fireball. I don't know. Like, there's no answer to that. Why they chop the fingers off? You know, you think like let's like that just seems like more things to lose along the way. Yes, agreed. It's too many pieces. So many thirteen. Pieces. Thirteen is too many to be exact. <laughs> well, the next morning, when sweet Mister Sparks woke up, he observed a brown sedan stopped in the street next to his house, and then it was driven away. He called the police again and told them to come out and investigate the blood he found on his front door. 
The police finally arrived on the scene around eight o'clock in the morning, so only about eight hours late. And upon seeing the massive amounts of blood all over the neighborhood, they decided they should do some investigating. (laughs) They followed the trail of blood from Mr. Sparks' house across the street where it turned into drag marks of blood, up some stairs and across a porch that was a little clean considering how much blood was around the rest of the neighborhood. (laughs) They knocked on the door for a while. Nobody answered. And so they thought, well... We'll get a search warrant. We got time. Which that, I mean, and I know that I've talked to you about this before, but like, what's with the search warrant? Like, I thought that if there's this blood and there's evidence of a crime, like we go in, we investigate. Like, so that is very interesting to me. Although, you know, I know 1987 to 2022. They didn't didn't seem to have ants in their pants about any any of this case. (laughs) You know, there was no sense of urgency. There was no real sense of urgency about this case. I don't know if they just wanted to like cover their asses or if they realized at that point that they had really fucked up. I don't know for sure. But wait, they did. (laughs) Wait, they did. uh, So they sealed up the area and got their search warrant and they entered the home where they found more blood, particularly in the basement. And they also found 13 pounds of pot. Well, now maybe they discovered that's why they left the head on the block. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> oh man. They discovered a bullet fragment inside of a clothes dryer and a bullet hole in a door at the top of the basement stairs. Eventually, they loaded a 357 Magnum handgun belonging to Rogers in the bottom of a cabinet or a speaker. So at that point, Rogers and his wife, Kathleen or Catherine, can't remember, don't really care what her name is. <laughs> they were arrested on June 30th and only charged with possession of controlled substances with intent to deliver and other drug-related crimes attached to the 13 pounds of wheat that they found in the house. Now, at this point, there's not a lot of information about anyone looking for Preston? Well, I mean, (laughs) at this point, why? (laughs) Yeah. The blood, I don't know, but we found weed. So we're on the solid, solid Boise PD. A few days later, a couple of 13 year old kids fishing discovered parts of Mer's body along the banks of the reservoir. Specifically, a bunch of fingers were just floating around. The fingerprints were matched to Preston Murr. Fingers. Did they not tie the garbage bag shut? 100% no. Doubt it. Uh, I, I mean, mean that's couldn't. 101, but what do I know? <laughs> it's murder 101. You always close the garbage bags. Where are the weights? Although, I know that never <laughs> works. I don't know from experience. Just know. <laughs> yeah. Police arrested Rogers and Cox for murder. Cox flipped, giving them details of the grisly murder, leading the police to evidence, placing blame on Rogers for the murder, and attributing his own involvement to his fear of Rogers. Separate trials were ordered for Rogers and Cox. Rogers' trial was scheduled first. His story changed a bunch of times. First, he said he wasn't there. Then he was, but didn't participate. He placed the blame squarely on Cox. 
At trial, Rogers testified that he tried to break up a knife fight, which occurred in the basement between Murr and Cox. He testified that Murr suddenly came at him with a knife, and he fired a warning shot in self-defense. Now, this is all according to Rogers, who is a Class A dickhead. Yeah. He said the shot unintentionally struck Murr in the shoulder, and as Murr rushed into Rogers, knocking him down and causing him to lose his gun. He then said that Murr fled up the stairs. Cox seized the gun and fired at him. Cox chased him down and brought him back to the basement. Rogers was then upstairs making some coffee when he heard He's, the fatal He was shot. making coffee. He was making He's coffee. He very tired. <laughs> well, <laughs> pot. Cox <laughs> then came up, said that he had killed Murr, and announced his plan to dispose of the body. Rogers testified that he could not participate in the butchery, but admitted that he helped clean up and dispose of the evidence. He said that the sight of the blood nearly made him vomit. Did it now. Sure thing, Dan. Sure thing. Totally believable. Got it. It just, he's a delicate flower. (laughs) That one. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Now, during Roger's trial, this is crazy too, a 15-year-old girl who was at that time incarcerated at the Ada County Jail. She's 15 years. 15 years old for robbery, uh, testified that a couple weeks before the murder, she had been at Rogers's house buying some drugs. And Rogers told her that he believed that Murr had stolen his guns and he was going to, quote, get even. <sighs> this is okay, so okay. problematic. Like, why is this child in jail testifying in a murder trial? And she is. In jail, in adult jail. She's 15 years old. Well, (laughs) she testified because the prosecution said that they would try her as a minor if she testified against Rogers. How do they... For burglary. Doesn't she have to be charged as a minor? For burglary, yes. That's insane. She's, She's 15. The 80s was a wild time. Wild time, 80s, who knows? Then a friend of Rogers, an adult person, a man named Todd Clough, testified that Rogers had told him some cocaine and some money around $1,000 had been taken from his home, and he was sick of getting ripped off, and he had a way of finding out who had done it, and they'd be sorry, because, you know, this map they're always gone. sorry. <laughs> Despite his protestations of his weak stomach, his fingerprints were found on the gun and the axe used to dismember Murr's body. Roger's final words before being sentenced to life in prison were, quote, I'm as much a victim in this case as Pete Murr. Almost. Unquote. Fuck you, Dan. <laughs> I can't even Wow, that's ballsy. Now, in the biggest scam I have ever heard. Darren Cox, who at the very least admitted that he had tried to stab Preston Murr. At the very least, he helped chop up a body and get rid of it. He put a head in a sagebrush. Okay. (laughs) Bare minimum. This guy makes a deal where if he testifies against Dan Rogers, he will have a five-year sentence. 
and only be charged with accessory. He never gets called to testify against Dan Rogers. He serves 180 days in jail and then is free as a fucking bird. So not only are the police the worst, Uh the prosecutor is the worst. Yeah. Like everyone's just the worst in this story. The only thing I can think of of why they didn't put him on the stand is because Darren Cox was a black man. Well, yes. And I think putting a black man and a white man, both of whom are known criminals, against each other, saying each of them did it in Idaho in 1987, probably a pretty good chance that Dan would have gotten away with it. Right. So disgusting. Totally. So Darren Cox, I mean, he made out like a bandit. Fucking bandit. If you were going to commit a murder, that was the time. That was the time. (laughs) Yes. Now let's talk about the reason the police never came. Yes, let's. Let's do it. Apparently there was a Foothills fire that night and it was chaos and they had dispatched everyone with legs to work this Foothills fire. Now the dispatcher... And Cam, I'm going to ask you about this because you were one for a long time. The dispatcher requested a cop and the cop that got called on it declined to take the call. Is that a thing they can do? Well, it's so different now than it was then. Like now our computer, when you put in a call and you code it, you'll code it as domestic or you'll code it as fire and it will tell you which one is the most important. So I'm sure, obviously, they didn't have that type of equipment back then. No, they could prioritize their calls. So if you have a a dog barking and it's bothering you, and then you have, I don't know, a murder, you're probably going to go to the the murder first. His reason for declining it is that he was helping with the fire. You are not a fireman, sir. You are not a fireman, sir. And I'll tell you this much. I mean, if there's a fire and a murder... We could at least send two guys over to the murder. Something. Two. I mean, I'm just even one. So after he declines the call, the dispatcher just doesn't do anything else. Right. And that, I mean, I can't even imagine just. No. Because then he calls back. She just decides. Yeah. She's just like, all right, well, I tried. Yeah, I did my best, which I mean, oh, that's the fucking worst. Now, this may be my favorite quote of all time, and I'm I'm probably going to use it all the time. Now, there was an investigation, obviously, because murder. The sheriff at the time in the investigation report said, and I quote, it was an out and out blunder. (laughs) I think t-shirts should be made. Twas a blunder. So sorry. I wonder. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> uh, oh, God. You know, it was a blunder, sir. I think the thing that is so frustrating is that if someone would have gone, yeah, there is no guarantee that Preston Murr still would have been alive by the time that they got there. Right. But if someone would have gone, they would have seen all the fucking blood all over the neighborhood. 
And they would have gone into the house and Cox and Rogers would not have had time to chop this kid into 13 pieces, put him into garbage bags, put him in the back of a shitty Grand Prix, drive him to the Oregon border, dump him in a lake with untied garbage bags like fucking idiots and traumatize two Mm -hmm. kids that are fishing when they find fucking fingers floating in a lake. Exactly. Yeah, it's just... I mean, if nothing else, that could have been avoided. Right. Yeah, it's disturbing. I can't even wrap my brain around not responding. What a fucking blunder. What a blunder. Now, the good thing about this case and why we chose to do this one first is because it has a murder and it's got some spooky shit too. Any place that has a basement, I feel like is going to have some spooky shit. Oh yeah, for sure. Especially those old houses. Yep. Basements are terrifying. Yeah. So we are going to talk about some hauntings. So it looks like the house last sold in April of 1988. Which is like five months after the murder. Right. No, almost a year after the murder. Yeah, 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 yeah. The current owner is the brother of Daniel Rogers' wife, which weird. Yep. Like, no thanks. Yep. Nope. Yeah. I'm noping right out. Nope. Um, it has been a rental forever, and they were forever. renting out to college kids. Mostly. Yeah. Yes, mostly college kids. Um. And some of them have reported seeing a window and a woman in a window screaming silently, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. That could just be like a drunk sorority girl. Yeah, no woman, as far as I know, died in that house. Yeah, no. I mean, it was built in 1910, so maybe somebody did die in that house. Um, that was only reported once that I could find. Um, there have been some like stories throughout the years, like. <clears throat> Um, a couple of radio stations have done um, stories on anniversaries of the murder and stuff. And I have um, one right here from Dandy, right? Yeah, so Dandy. I'll read, I'll read this story. Get your, get your spooky pants on. <laughs> from Dandy, we were upstairs in one of the side bedrooms when we heard someone walk up the stairs. Didn't think much of it. Thought it was the roommate. But then we heard it again, and we never heard anyone go downstairs. So me and my friend, B, went to check it out. We thought it was someone break into the house. We checked everything out and don't see anyone, so we go and stand on the porch to let whoever was there know we're watching if he comes back. It was late, maybe midnight, and I kept seeing shadows out of the corner of my eyes. I just thought I was tired until B asked me if I was seeing this stuff too. We figured out we weren't looking for a person. I step out into the front yard and look up into the main bedroom upstairs. In the window is a big, black, oily-looking thing. I doubt what I'm seeing until it moves back towards the dresser, stops, goes to the door, and disappears. I see a mirror sitting next to the door on the porch, and it catches my attention for some random reason. I'm looking in the mirror and see a ball of oily blackness coming down the pillar. Of course, I'm still doubting myself until the little ball gets huge, It takes up the whole reflection of the mirror, and the thing goes through me. It was the weirdest, most disturbing thing I've ever felt, and just typing this makes me feel it again. It's like ice fingers sinking into my shoulders. 
being the tough guys that we were, we ran down to the Chevron and called all of our friends in the house to tell them to get the car keys and get the hell out of there. I never went back to that house, but B continued to live there for a little while longer. He said, feel free to doubt me and call me crazy. I don't care. Ice fingers is fingers to think about. Fingers. fingers. Oh my God. Fingers. Yeah. Ah. So fingers. You crack the case. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's hard with this one because there are a lot of people like, um, in that same light, um, 107.9 FM story that they did with Dandy. They interviewed some other people that lived in the house and, right. you know, there was like a mom and her daughters that lived there for a couple of years and they said nothing out of the ordinary ever happened. One of them said the basement was a little creepy, but it's a fucking basement. They're right. all creepy. And like, I, that is, I will, there. that is the hill I will die on. <laughs> you will not find a cozy fucking basement. Okay. They're all fucking murder houses. <laughs> Right. And anyway. I mean, if there's no ghosts, there was an actual murder in that basement. So creepy. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like the oily business, that is more believable to me than like, I don't know. I feel like I'm a supernatural agnostic or something. Do you know what Stop I mean? Stop it. Like, I am you, like, there are ghosts. Well, I feel no, I know. I like, do I believe that some dark fucking energy lives in places where tragic shit happens? Absolutely. Like I am full believer in that. I have a harder time with like specters and demons and that kind of stuff. But then I have people who like my hairdresser, Rachel. Hey, Rachel. She told me about some crazy shit that happened to her in her house. And I believe her because she's not nuts, you know? I'm telling you. So it's real. Come on this journey with me. Listen, I'm sure by three or four episodes into this podcast, I will be a serious believer. Um, I don't know. It's also hard because most of the people that have lived in this house since the murder are drunk college kids. Right. You know? Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably like the most believable to me is like the dark energy. I agree. There's ice fingers. And ice fingers, which makes so much sense. So, yeah. So when researching this, I came across something that was so ridiculous and it's not really case related, but it is case related. And I wanted to share it. And so we decided that at the end of every episode, we are going to do a segment where we find something that's sort of related to what we're talking about, but is just particularly ridiculous. And we are going to call this segment, Oh, Idaho. (laughs) So when I came across this, I immediately sent it to Camden. And her reaction was like, What? In the actual fuck. Because That's I exactly everyone's reaction. <laughs> so who we are going to talk about today is the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare. 
Now, how are they related to the murder house, you ask? Well, I'm going to tell you. They are related because up until four months before Preston Murr was dismembered in the house at 805 Linden, previously convicted murderer out of California, Daniel Rogers, and his drug-dealing wife, Kathleen slash Catherine, had for 22 months three foster children in their care. Three. Three. Three foster children in their care. Now, remember, Dan had already killed somebody in California. Convicted. He had convicted second degree murder, five years, only five years in prison. And then they schlepped him up to us. Thank you, California. (laughs) Yes. And apparently in 1987 or 1980, whenever that they applied uh, to be foster parents, the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare did not think it was an appropriate use of their time to run fingerprints on the people that were going to be caring for the abused, neglected, and abandoned children of Idaho. Now, what was so the- well fucking done? <laughs> what? What was the <laughs> fingerprinting process back in 1987? Like the very least they could have done was a background check because we know he was convicted of murder. Right, right. And when I was researching it, because I was like, this, this is, this is an out and out blunder. <laughs> Another. When I was researching this, you know, it looks like the Department of Health and Welfare sort of blamed the feds and the feds were like, no, fuck off. It was in our records. You guys just didn't dive deep enough. Luckily, because of this case, the procedure and the laws regarding becoming a foster parent in Idaho did change because of this. So now if you've murdered someone, you probably aren't going to get to foster. It's a real shame. Oh, Idaho. <laughs> oh, Idaho. Oh. <laughs> so that is the story of the Boise Murder House. We hope you enjoyed hanging out with us. It was like the most fun. It was so fun. Well, if you did enjoy it, or even if you didn't, please like and subscribe. It would be the world we could just talk shit and hang out with you guys dream dream life. dream dream yeah you can follow us on instagram at ghosts and garnets podcast and we are on facebook at ghosts and garnet uh, murder in idaho and we will be posting photos um, to go along with every case as they come out We are going to shoot for um, new episodes every other Thursday. And if you guys love it and want more, we will give you more. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye.